Support for 10,000 Things comes from Third Place Books. With three store locations in Seattle, Washington, Third Place Books offers a wide selection of books, gifts, and over 250 author readings a year, in-store or online at thirdplacebooks.com. There's an old expression about carrying a tune. Of someone who sings notes off-pitch, it's simply said, he can't carry a tune in a bucket. Today, songs are binary code delivered in a digital format, something intangible. But there was a time when a song was something you could hold on to, literally hold close to your heart in your arms. What would motivate a person to carry a song? Take the subject of one of photographer Dorothea Lang's historic images. The photograph was made in the months after Executive Order 9066 was signed into effect during World War II. President Roosevelt's order authorized the relocation and incarceration of all people of Japanese ancestry. Lang captured the upheaval of evacuation on the West Coast. People took only what they could carry with their two hands. And in one of Lang's most striking images, a young Japanese-American woman carries a suitcase and 78 records tucked under her arm. Like 78s are three minutes per side. They're one song per side. And so I just think about that decision out of all the other things to bring to choose a song. A song can be like an artifact, like a photo that we carry with us and pass down to future generations. And like a photograph, it then can tell us stories about our past, reveal aspects of a changing culture, a changing time, but if a song is like an artifact, can it be lost, misplaced, or forgotten? Today, we're going to look at songs and the artifact that keeps them alive. This is The Blue Suit, a podcast about the commonplace things that touch our lives and the uncommon people that transform them into something remarkable. I'm Shinyi Pai. Today, the Caliphone. Support for 10,000 Things comes from Third Place Books. With three store locations in Seattle, Washington, Third Place Books offers a wide selection of books, gifts, and over 250 author readings a year, in-store or online at thirdplacebooks.com. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Paul Kikuchi grew up surrounded by music. I remember my dad bringing home a Run DMC album. That was my first record. This was back when music had a very physical presence. Paul remembers listening to his dad's records 
then transitioning to Maxell cassettes, and later buying his first CD, Sonic Youth's Sister. Paul went on to study percussion. Now he plays music as well as composes. Paul knows music can be ephemeral, but he knows it can also be physical, tangible. Developing my own musical taste and putting songs together on a mixtape was such a formative thing for me when I was getting into music. Paul is the artist behind the songs of Nihonmachi. It's an audio listening station installed at the Panama Hotel Tea Room. Visitors can play and listen to vintage Japanese records by interacting with his project. I chatted with Paul at a cafe table next to his audio installation. Visitors can walk up and select from a small collection of records to play on an old-school caliphone. A caliphone is a motorized turntable. With today's streaming technologies, the act of placing a record on a player may feel like a total novelty. Yeah, so, yeah, the idea of the exhibit is that visitors to the cafe can come in and get a cup of tea and visit and then can come over and choose a record from the stack of records to put on a player and listen to. The experience transports the visitor to another time, engaging them in the act of playing and listening to music from more than 75 years ago. A vintage phonograph becomes a window into a bygone era. Paul's interest in record collections reaches back to his great-grandfather. Zenkichi Kikuchi left his village of Kuradasuke, Japan, in 1900 to relocate to the United States. Leaving behind economic depression, it was his plan, as the oldest child in his family, to earn his fortune and return home. But that never happened. Instead, he settled in eastern Washington and farmed and started a family. Paul knows some of his story because Zenkichi left behind a handwritten memoir. In his journal, Zenkichi documented the plants and growing conditions he observed as a farmer, alongside the differences between American and Japanese agricultural practices. He also reflected on his hopes and dreams, like traveling to Seattle to meet his future wife, a picture bride who came all the way from Japan to marry him, sight unseen. So for me, that's been a real gift to get to know him. He died before I was born. And, and so that's, the memoir has been, it's just been a fascinating window in his life. But his great-grandfather also left behind something else that has helped Paul imagine his family's history, his record collection. Pull it out here so you can see what it looks like. Let's see, there's... Yeah, five records. You know, what a small record collection. <laughs> I remember seeing this for the first time being like, wow, this was his music collection. Zenkichi's records are collected together between faded and cracked red cardstock album covers. A series of record sleeves are bound together like pages in a book. Within each sleeve is a shiny black disc with a round center label neatly printed in Japanese script. Um, so these records are post-war, they're late 1940s, early 1950s. So I'm imagining that he picked them up at a shop like Chihara Jewelry, which uh, was one of the main shops in Japantown here that sold records. I am imagining that he would come over and like, you know, drink in bars and hang out and who knows what else. 
These records allowed Paul to imagine who his great-grandfather was, his weekend routines, his collecting habits, and how he grew his song collection. But I don't know. Like, who knows? Maybe these are my great-grandmother's records. This small, private record collection led Paul to another larger collection. When a community archivist learned about Paul's creative work, reimagining his great-grandfather's materials, he approached Paul with an invitation to help him in a mission to preserve local history together. The Japanese Community Cultural Center of Washington archives records of the Japanese-American community. Many of these came from the personal collections of people who were incarcerated during World War II or from their families who managed to hold on to these relics. 78 RPM records are, shellac is a very breakable medium. And so there's accounts of people just like shattering all of their records just because they didn't want to have anything Japanese in the house when the FBI came door to door, right? Paul started working in the archive, helping preserve sounds that might otherwise have been lost. Being acutely aware of how much was lost during those years and then seeing this room full of these records was so moving for me. Like, wow, these persevered. Like the woman in Dorothea Lang's photograph, there were other community members who saved and protected their record collections from being destroyed so that personal and cultural history wouldn't be lost. When the archive asked people to donate their collections, they received something they never expected, personal home recordings. In the 40s, disc recorders were designed for amateur home use, which resulted in the recording of acetate audio letters, family gatherings, and parties. For the first time, people had a way to record themselves at home. To me, those are some of the most moving pieces within the collection. You get to be a fly on the wall, listening in to what was happening in households. One of them was, I think it was from 1941, but it was of a young child singing this country tis of thee. Just stuff like that where you're like, am I really hearing this, you know? My country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. But freedom wasn't for everyone. The Japanese Americans of that era didn't yet know the incarceration that awaited them. And the fathers who died, they perished in incarceration camps and fighting overseas to defend a country that betrayed them. This archive of music, words, language, and memory opened up a whole new area of exploration for Paul. It just all of a sudden blew up my conception of how many stories there were to be told. Like I'd been thinking of it so personally and so much about my family story and all of a sudden realizing that our community's story was there to be told. An archive of records holds important history, but everyday folks don't always visit or know what treasures await them in the archives. Paul wanted people to hear the records and experience them. And he thought of the Panama. Every time I was in the Panama, I would like, I would hear sounds. 
The Panama is a hotel and tea room in the Chinatown International District here in Seattle. I would look at photos and look at artifacts and just experience the space. And I would imagine what it would sound like in a space like this back when my great-grandfather would make his trips from, from Toppenish over here on the weekends and what it was like for him to walk down the streets of Nihonmachi and like what kind of music was playing coming out of windows. The Panama housed one of the few sentos or public bathhouses for Japanese Americans on the West Coast. It's just such an important spot for our community. There's so many nooks and crannies and like, it makes me think of Tanazaki's essay In Praise of Shadows where he speaks about this Western fascination of like illuminating every corner and how like the Japanese aesthetic is much more about like leaving some corners in the shadows to be explored or to not be, have to be clean and illuminated. There's mystery here. As a vital gathering place where business was conducted, the Panama became a site where people left their belongings when they were driven out of Seattle into the incarceration camps. Many of these personal possessions were never reclaimed. Today, people can see that history by gazing through a plexiglass light well built into the tea room floor. They see into the basement where chests covered in nearly 80 years of dust glow with grime. Inside these trunks are kimonos, household objects like teapots and personal papers like an unfinished handwritten missive. It's one thing reading about it and it's one thing hearing about it, but just seeing bags packed that were never picked up is so moving and so heartbreaking. This is where Paul wanted people to experience the music. The Songs of Nihonmachi listening station sits in the center of the cafe. The Caliphone record player sits atop a wooden stand Paul's brother made with influences from Japanese woodworking designs. And down below, sits a rotating selection of 10 to 12 records in colorful sleeves. I really wanted visitors to be able to have a tactile experience, being able to hold the records and just set it down on the platter and get the platter spinning and drop the needle on there. It's such a unique experience. A stack of records are just abstract objects without the technology that can bring them to life. Even with their eye-catching album art that suggests a certain mood, the experience is incomplete until the music is unlocked and activated. Paul likens it to a Japanese tea ceremony. The cracks in a raku drinking vessel become more distinct when offset by foamy bright green matcha tea. A ceramic tea bowl feels unexpectedly lightweight when grasped in two hands. The nuance of gesture and ritual is so amazing. There may be some parallel to just that feeling of pulling the record out and placing it down and each of those little steps along the way. <laughs> Should I do it? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I've never done this. I don't know what I'm doing. Awesome. I handle the record by its edges, like I often saw my father handle his own record collection, to avoid smudging the 78 with my fingerprints. If I were even more careful, I'd probably blow away any dust before placing the platter on the turntable. I lift the needle of the caliphone to place it on the spinning disc. 
So I, I believe that this particular Caliphone came from Craig's, a Craigslist sale. I rendezvoused with a seller at a gas station and I probably paid around $40 for it. That's haunting. <laughs> the Caliphone player is manufactured by a company best known for making water heaters and furnaces. As far as I understand, they were made primarily for public schools back in the day when they would have, they would show film, silent films and they would need to sync the sound with a record. And probably because they were being made for schools, they're built like tanks. Often you'll see a, a school tag still on these. This one says Tempe School District 3. So at some point this was in use in a classroom in Arizona, it looks like, yeah. Interacting with an installation takes a certain amount of pluckiness. We're often invited to look and read. Everywhere around the Panama are photographs and maps of what the neighborhood once looked like. We take in information with our eye, but we're rarely invited to handle anything. Think about the signage in a museum. The rules shout out to not cross a line. We do not touch. Lifting a record player needle is a different kind of invitation. Engaging with old technology to figure out how it works requires its own patience and curiosity. But there's a reward. The music fills the space and asks to be listened to. The song carries above the sound of the cash register and coffee bean grinder. The convergence of past time and present time allows us to enter deep time, a state of timelessness. Paul's great-grandfather's record collection gave him access to his family's experiences from another time. And Paul has carried that music with him, both as physical records and in a musical album he created. Paul took songs from his great-grandfather's record collection and composed new music to overlay onto the original. He wove together old and new. As a person who isn't fluent in my ancestor's native language, I'm very aware of all that's been lost within one generation. The songs that defined our experiences as people, whether harvest songs or water songs, aren't objects that I can easily access or pass along to my own children. The songs that my parents carried with them when they left Taiwan are unknown to me. And so as someone interested in activating historical artifacts to unlock memory, I think a lot about the poems and songs that I choose to keep and carry. By internalizing and embodying their language in my own voice, I give them another life through relating to them. I think often about what is lost or what isn't kind of circulated or handed down through the generations. I wonder if there are any specific songs that you collect or you consider kind of like part of what you carry with you. Mm, wonderful question. I, 
I will never understand the music in the way that my great grandparents might have needed that music to feel connected to their homeland, but still activating these objects sonically. I really see that as reclaiming so many sounds that were lost generally through the process of trying to assimilate and then specifically through the through the trauma of the incarceration. So yeah, it's it's a reclamation. Turning back to Junichiro Tanizaki and its praise of shadows, the famous essayist once wrote, we love the color and sheen that call to mind the past that made them. Speaking of something touched over and over again, he described the gleam produced through a thing being handled, the glow of grime, the sheen revealed by shadow. We turn the mind towards where light never fully reaches to recover what we choose to bring back into the light and to call our own. Check out our show notes to find out more about Paul and hear his music. Next week's object is the blue suit, the namesake of our show. a special object that you hold close, share it with us on Instagram. Tag at KOW and use the hashtag Blue Suit Pod. The Blue Suit is produced by KOW in Seattle. Our host, writer, and creator is me, Shin Yi Pai. Whitney Henry Lester produced this episode. Jim Gates is our editor. Tomo Nakayama wrote our theme music. Our production team includes Michaela Giannotti, Tio Popescu, Hans Twight, Melissa Takai, and Brendan Sweeney. Special thanks to the Windrose Fund for their financial support. I hope you're enjoying the blue suit. If you are, tell a friend. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. And thanks. Thanks.